Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Awesome. Um, again, my name is Joshua. We haven't met, and we're in this series simply called, after you, uh, simply called God Behaving Badly. And I, and I love the graphic. It's not original with us, but it's kind of got that uh, Monty Python, Life of Brian feel to it. It's kind of fun. And so we're kind of poking fun at some things, some things in terms of maybe some of those pre-misconceptions, those, those bad understandings of God. And, and not that they're bad because they are how could you come to that point? It's very understandable how someone could come to that point and that conclusion, but they're still bad in that they are wrong. And today we're going to look at, a, at one of those stories of the Bible that maybe is not talked about very often. And, and it is a very rough story. Uh, it's a rough story because it's a very uh, real story. We'll spend a lot of time on it, and I will do my best to, to recognize that there are various ages in the room and, and, uh, and protect innocence as best we can. But just so you know up front, this, this is a tough one, okay? This is a tough one. There's one of those passages of the Bible, one of those stories of the Bible that's not a fun thing to talk about. You know, if I was going to be editor of the Bible, I, I might excise this one out. Because there are some stories in the Bible that of course you would talk about maybe at Sunday school or with your kids, or if you're in a you know, children's Bible and you're reading and looking at the pictures, you're, of course you're going to look at pictures about, you know, and the story of Noah's Ark. Now, what, who doesn't like animals and that whole idea of being kind of this big adventure and all that? Uh, who wouldn't like that story about Daniel and the lion den? These ferocious lions are somehow declawed and and become tame and are no longer a threat. It's a a really powerful story. But then there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is not a fun story. And and, and to be honest, in this story, what we are going to see is that the English version of this, what we've done with the place names of this city, aren't exactly mentioned in the Bible. The details about the sins of these two cities in the Old Testament aren't always clearly lined out. And when they are, it may not be what you think it might be. But we're going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah to answer a simple question. Is God sexist? Is God sexist or is God empowering? We're looking at this series and it's kind of one of those series in, 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 in you know, looking ahead and planning as we do. I was like, yeah, that'll be a fun thing to talk about. And then it was go time. And I got to get up here and talk about these ideas and these misconceptions, these delicate topics. But this big question is one of those. Is God sexist? Before we get there, I, I want to look back and, and kind of see where we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish here in this series. Uh, what we're trying to do is not do this big, you know, God behaving badly thing where we say, look how horrible God is. What we're going to do is try to say is look at all the ways that we have placed all of these other things on top of God. We have kind of added our own things to things that we've ultimately, we have missed the point. So there in Genesis chapter 19, we pick up this story. And in this story, we see that two angels are sent by God to see if the people of a city were too wicked to be saved. Or if only one man, this man named Lot, and his family could be rescued. Now, obviously this is an odd story. What a a kind of weird thing for God to test, but this is the story that we have passed down to us. 
And in that culture, we're going to immediately see the importance, the value that's placed on hospitality. In this culture, you were kind of bound by honor, bound by all these unwritten rules, bound by expectations to welcome in the stranger. And you were to do so at any cost, you were to do so at any, any, anything that you could do, you were supposed to do for these visitors. But these angels who are in disguise, they don't reveal, himself, they reveal themselves, they find shelter at Lot's home, and that evening there's kind of this mob. There's this mob of men of the city that form outside and are flying in the face of the rules of hospitality and are demanding that Lot turn out these newcomers so they can do, quote-unquote, the Bible says, what they will with them. They can have their way with them. We find ourselves in this spot where it's kind of this, this moment where they're asking these questions, these, this kind of this debate is going on with inside the house, and Lot kind of, I don't know if he kind of cracks his door, if he sticks his head out, out a window, but he says that these men who, who are demanding these visitors, Lot tries to reason with the mob, so rather than telling them to go away, he offers to send out his two daughters. He offers to send his two daughters so the visitors would be safe, so the mob would be satiated. It's hard to know what to do with a story like this, right? You you might be reading along for the first time, you think, look how horrible this city is. These people, these men who are demanding these visitors, what are they going to do with them? But then the hero, or one of the heroes of the story, Lot, at least that's how I've been reading up to this point, is now going to turn out his two daughters. So I read this, and if you're disturbed and you think well why would god somehow value men and these strangers these these men over his daughters you might say man god is pretty sexist and so today we're trying to ask that question we're trying to trying to tackle this bigger issue this bigger issue of of whether or not god is in fact sexist and one of the things that we did last week is we said that that there's something kind of depersonalizing about just talking about God in kind of these general terms. So what we see in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament is that they will often refer to what is translated in English as the Lord, which is translated in Hebrew as Yahweh, which is kind of like saying God's first name. It's a very personal thing. It's not exactly like a first name, but it's kind of this personal way to connect with God. And so what we see from the start of this story, of God's story, is that God and his people are connecting on a personal level. So maybe better to say, is Yahweh sexist? Is Yahweh empowering? And so we go back to this Genesis 19 moment. We go back and we, we try to put ourselves in this situation. We try to digest this story. We have to consider some things. We have to think about how this story takes place in a sexist culture. By definition, in this culture, women were of lesser value than men. Now, just because the Bible records a story that happens within a sexist story doesn't mean the Bible is giving authority, credence, approval to this sexist story. It doesn't mean that Yahweh is a sexist. Think of it this way. Think about all the ways in which we, we turn on the news, we fire up our phone, we, we look at the headlines, we see horrible things that lead the headlines, but that is not the majority experience for us. Those things are tragic, those things are terrible, but that is not, just because it leads the news isn't what is normative. Is it, is it just what's okay? 
And just because a story is in the Bible doesn't mean that Yahweh, doesn't mean that God approves of what's happening. You read in the Bible, you will read stories of people making very human mistakes, making very human mistakes. And in that, that is God not saying, it's okay if you do this. It is God holding up these examples. And just because we read this and it disturbs us, it doesn't mean that we should just try to smooth off the edges or sweep it under the rug. So here's some things about this story that I think are important, as awful it is for us to sit with. God didn't offer up those girls. God didn't offer up those girls Lot did. And Lot is never affirmed for what he did. In fact, he is consistently painted throughout the rest of Scripture in a pretty negative light. As the story goes on, the two angels sent by Yahweh actually take action to protect Lot and his daughters from what Lot had proposed. They pull Lot back into the house and shut the door. It says, says there in chapter 19, verse 10, but the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. They interrupt the negotiations. They interrupt this horrid scene. Not only that, we read in verse 11, but the men of the city are punished. They are blinded for what they've done. So this is a terrible story. But from start to finish, what we see is God, and what we see is Yahweh acting justly. I think we could all agree that someone who is out to abuse, do some sort of violence, to rape someone, they need to be punished. That is something that needs to be stopped. There's nothing in this story that, that suggests that Yahweh condones the evil of these men or the sexist actions of Lot. If anything, this story is a great example of how far us humans have strayed from the dream. Because that's what this is all about. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we miss that the people in the Bible are just as screwed up as we are. We miss the humanness of the Bible. See, here's the thing about Scripture. You can make this argument that there are about only four chapters where things are right. You say, well, what about Jesus? Things were right then. Yeah, Jesus was great and was a great example, and this is God on earth, but they, they tortured and executed him. You could really say there's only about four chapters in the Bible where things are right. The first two, where God makes everything, God is, it's, it's pristine, it is just set up, it is just right there, it is such a gift, it is good, and the last two. In the last two, we see where God rules, not above and removed, but down with us here. This new creation. So we say that take out those four chapters and the rest of the Bible, you've got some messed up stuff. You've got some people that are challenged, people that are struggling, people that are dealing with things beyond their control, dealing with things that they have brought upon themselves, dealing with horrible things, horrible challenges over and over and over again. So what is Yahweh's dream when it comes to gender, when it comes to women and how men treat women and how women treat men? If you've been around churches or Christianity for very long, you know there are a lot of different views about God's dreams and God's views for women and their roles, specifically about whether or not women are allowed to teach or whether women are allowed to hold authority or, or, or positions of, of a pastor within a church. And some people will gravitate to two statements within the New Testament. Two statements that I'm pretty familiar with, and maybe you are as well, but they're in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. 
And I will acknowledge that when I read those, I can understand how someone can arrive at a place where they say, no woman should ever be on any kind of platform, so to speak, any kind of pastoral or leadership role. I can understand where they're coming from. I'm not saying that if you're in that spot, you are somehow theologically bankrupt. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying I would disagree. Because when I read those scriptures and I think about these scriptures in light of the totality of the Bible and the totality of what we see with God, when we think about the dream that God has for us as we are to connect with one another, as we connect with him, I see something different. I would look at those two passages in the New Testament and I realize this might be inside baseball for some of us. I think those are context dependent. Those are writing to specific situations for specific things at specific times. And we could talk more about that, and I'd be happy to, to, to kind of come, come alongside you in that, but one book that I found really helpful I want to pull a quote from is by a theologian named Scott McKnight. It's a book called The Blue Parakeet, like the bird, The Blue Parakeet. And in this book, he talks about this idea that we take a couple of verses and we kind of frame out the entirety of our understanding of, of a theology of gender and the role of women and the role of women in the church. Uh, Dr. McKnight says this, it's like asking about marriage in the Bible— and gravitating toward the divorce text. You know, we could spend our time talking about why this or why that, and that's a whole, whole other sermon, if not a whole other sermon series. But I believe, like McKnight, that, that when we examine the whole of Scripture, when we ask questions like, what is Yahweh's dream? What is Yahweh, how does Yahweh view women? Is Yahweh sexist or empowering? So let's start. Let's try to answer some of those questions. Let's start that people on all sides, the issues they go back to, they go back to the beginning. It's one of those four verses where things are right. And there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, however God created it, we see that in the beginning that they think these things are right. He creates all these animals, these birds, these fish, and finally he creates you and I. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, that, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, from the beginning, humans were created unique. They were set apart from the rest of creation. They were kind of God's kind of climactic moment that this is incredible, that humans were given the ability, the capacity for wonder, for thought, for invention, for humor and wit. We were created in the image of God. Not that we somehow resemble, look like God physically, although perhaps, who am I to say, but we are somehow connected, that we reflect God's qualities and God's attributes. So it's significant. It's significant what Yahweh says here at the beginning and what he says about women. What he says here is that they are like him. Women are made in the image of God. Women are godlike, which half the room at least will agree with me on, right? Now, guys, you're godlike too, and but not you, most of you already think that, so that's a problem, problematic statement right there. But what we see from the beginning is that both men and women are created by Yahweh to reflect God's godliness, to reflect his goodness. If we turn over to page two, probably, of Genesis chapter two, what we will see is we find yet another account of the creation story. And in this account, we see that Yahweh creates man first, and then from one of man's ribs, he creates the woman. And, and some have taken this and kind of extrapolated this idea, well, if, if God creates the man first, then that means the man is of first importance and the woman is secondary. Okay, so if we, we sit with this idea 
if the order is, is somehow indication of hierarchy or position, then looking at the rest, then the darkness is more important than the light. The animals are more important than plants and trees. And, and all of these things, everything created day one through day five, are more important than humans. You see, what we actually see is that as creation goes on, it gets more and more complex. It gets more and more intricate. It gets more and more detailed. It becomes more and more likely to show God's creativity. And so I'm very willing to say this. Women, you're more complex than men, right? I, I, I think that's, that's the clear teaching of this, right? Like that's, that's where this is headed. And this notion of hierarchy and power and status, like, I, I just don't know about that. It doesn't seem to line up with the rest of things. There's another reason that people are tempted to read hierarchy and, and power and position here into the creation story. It comes from there in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, that English translation of helper is really a problem. It's really a problem because in English, you might read that and you think, I don't want to just be a helper. I don't, I don't want to be a helper. Helpers go get coffee, right? Helpers pat people on the back. It's, but it's a problem for the, what happens in English. It's a problem for what it originally means in Hebrew. See, the problem with an ancient language is that we can only look at how else it's used in other spots to really get, get at understanding it. And so in this form of Hebrew, what we see in this word is used other places within the Bible. And it's often used to describe God. This word helper is used to describe God when God provides, usually, military strength to overturn a battle. So this idea of helper that sometimes is thrown on women, hey, you just go in the kitchen, you know, just, just go clean up, like you just take care of that stuff. No, no, no. This word helper is usually attributed to God and usually in the context of God showed up and kicked the butt of this army. And so this notion of helper is even kind of bankrupt then and there. What we see is that there in, in, in chapters 1 and 2 that things are right. That women are, are full of, of, of dignity. They're, they are the full expression of God's creation as are men. What we see here is the, an equality. The helper is someone who doesn't just kind of assist on the side, but really comes in and saves so often. But then we turn the page to Genesis 3. What theologians, what Christians for centuries have called the fall. When things are no longer perfect. And in this story, you might know it, you know the story, this idea that there's this ability that Adam and Eve can eat from anything they want. Like the first two commandments of, of the Bible are that they are supposed to have a bunch of kids and eat a lot of food, right? Like God is not restrictive. But he says, hey, there's one tree you just need to avoid. And there's all these thought of why would the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, why would this be prohibited? Why would this one be the one that you couldn't go to? Well, maybe it was because it would allow people to understand things the way God did, and it would kind of be this idolatry where now we are putting ourselves in the place of God. I'm not sure. And maybe it's all a metaphor, and maybe it didn't really happen, but it's still true because it still teaches us something because we are never really satisfied with what God gives us. And in this story, in this poem that opens the Bible, we read that Eve is there, and there's some sort of fruit, usually we think of it as an apple, and she takes of this apple, and there's this talking snake that cons her into it and eats of it. 
And in this moment, everything comes crashing down because the trust, the relationship is broken between God and human beings. But there's this moment where we have to acknowledge so often people say, well, that was Eve's fault. But the next verse says that Adam was with her because she turned and handed the apple to Adam. Now, not to be like dumb guy, stereotypical joke here, but Adam and Eve were perfect. They were in a garden. They were told to have lots of kids and eat as much food as they want. There's no clothes. I'm not leaving her side, right? I am there. She hands me something cool. I'm in. I'm not thinking at this point. And so what we see is that Adam is complicit in this whole thing. And so often we, we ex- extend this, this, this blame to Eve that she is the one. She is somehow responsible for bringing everything down. And what we see in the aftermath, the, the, the ways in which that Adam and Eve went against God's plan, if Yahweh's plan, the, the experience, the consequences of their actions. And they shatter Yahweh's dream for humanity. And not only does sin separate them from God, it had consequences to our relationship with one another. So Yahweh says to Eve in, in chapter 16, God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God here, I don't think, is describing how things should be. I think he's describing how things are. That there is a, a brokenness in that relationship. And I think it begins to trouble God. I think it breaks God's heart. We read about how at this point, at this point moving forward, that there is kind of this rescue plan. There's this restoration plan that's going on. We often talk about here at our mission, our mission of movement churches to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe that part of following Jesus, part of helping one another do that, is pushing one another, of getting us closer back to God's dream. Not so that we can somehow perfect it, but because we believe that is better, that that is the full life. That is what God wants for us. It is a gift. And as tragic as Genesis chapter 3 is for humanity, God immediately begins to act to overcome the consequences of this curse. The rest of the story, the kind of the story that starts in Genesis climaxes with Jesus. It, it kind of peaks at the story of Jesus where Jesus comes not to encourage us all to be better, not to just say, here's the final list of the do's and don'ts, not to just say, hey, make sure you show up to church on Sunday. What Jesus does is come in and say, I am going to put an end to all this shame, all this guilt, all this evil. I'm going to put to an end all the fear that we have about death. I'm going to allow you not to live in isolation but to be connected with God and experience this now and forever Jesus came and ended all of that and what do we see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 I think we see God kind of saying this is what I'm going to do it's going to happen in Jesus God says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head you will strike his heel. He's talking to the serpent. He's talking to this personification of evil. And he is saying, this will end. I will crush you underneath my heel. As we look forward to the rest of the Old Testament, despite it occurring in just a sexist culture by and large, where women are valued less than men, what we see over and over again is actually Yahweh of God empowering women. We see that Yahweh selects essentially the first female president. That, that, that in this period of judges, these wise rulers, he selects one of them, a woman named Deborah, who's the political leader of Israel. She was also a prophet. 
who had been viewed as a, not just a political leader, but also a spiritual leader for the nation. We see that Yahweh raises up Rahab, Rahab, a prostitute, to assist the Israelites in conquering Jericho. She's a, a crucial player in that story. Yahweh uses wise women like Abigail to advise kings and commanders. Yahweh blessed Ruth for her courage and her devotion. And through her bloodline, we arrive at Mary and Joseph. The writers of the gospel are saying, without Ruth, it all falls apart. We read about how Yahweh raised up Esther to prevent a genocide of God's people. And then we read in the New Testament the ways in which Jesus empowers women. Jesus continues this practice by honoring them, by giving them opportunities that were considered completely countercultural for his time. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to a woman, to a woman of ill repute, to a woman of a bad reputation, to a woman on the margins. In a culture where men didn't speak to women in public, Jesus consistently engaged with women in conversation. Women were included in his kind of expanded understanding of disciples. Women were allowed these seats of honor at his feet. A rabbi would have seats of honor that the, the most prized students would sit up front, sit at his feet while he taught. Jesus allows women to do this. What we see at the resurrection, this, this to me is always mind-blowing to me. What we see at the resurrection is that women show up. Women show up because Jesus was buried on a Friday afternoon into Friday evening. Sabbath begins on Friday at sundown. There is no activity Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, particularly when it, comes to come, when it comes to becoming in contact with the dead, with the deceased. And so Jesus is put into a tomb on Friday evening. Saturday, Sunday morning, there at the, as Sabbath is over, it is not men, it's not his closest followers who say, hey, we need to go make sure that the tomb is all right and no one's like desecrated the body and all these things. It's a group of women. And so it's women who are first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And it's these women who are given the first task of declaring this news. It is women who go to the hiding, scared little apostles who are up in that upper room and are just so afraid and they can't leave. And I'd probably be right there with them if I was in their shoes. They're the ones that show up and say, the tomb is empty. And they don't believe him because, of course, they wouldn't believe him. You wouldn't believe a woman who told you something crazy then. And you wouldn't believe someone who told you something crazy now. But these women were the first witnesses to this. It all falls apart without women in this story, right? They are more important than men, but they're just as important. Is God sexist? I think God's empowering See, Jesus came to restore Yahweh's dream for the world. The early Christian leaders recognized that. We read that the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Galatia. And Galatia was like a lot of churches in that area of the world, with modern-day Turkey and kind of the, the Mediterranean rim into Greece. And what we read in this story is that this is a city that is full of all sorts of types of people. It's full of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And Christianity is spreading, and it's spreading predominantly through women and the poor. Because who is going to respond to this message of, of freedom? Who's going to respond to this message of grace than the people that society has walked all over? And so in this church, made up of people from all walks of life, people from all different backgrounds, all different contexts, 
And they're coming together, and they're bringing with them all of their cultural baggage, all of their baggage that says, well, you know what, I've got more money than you, so I should be, I should be higher up in the food chain. Or I've got this amount of pigment in my skin, and so I should be here. Or I've got this background professionally, and whatever, I, I should be above you. All that stuff, right? I'm glad we don't have to deal with that anymore, right, aren't you? But what we see in these moments is these churches are trying to work out this idea that says Jesus saved us, Jesus calls us a new creation, we have been made new, we are a new people, we are supposed to live differently, so how do we do that? And what we see is Paul and others writing to these churches, and this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 28. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's an equality here. There is, ne- there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is countercultural. This is inflammatory. This is ridiculous. People don't say these sorts of things. But Jesus changed that. Jesus changed that. We could go to Romans and read about Junia. We could read about in Acts about Priscilla, who was basically bankrolling and leading one of the house churches because she knew what she was doing with business. We could read about Philip's four daughters in Acts 21 who, who led and taught and prosified in the early church. We could read about the women who were with Paul and kind of Paul's disciples and were given the authority to carry these letters that turned into our Bible to these churches. And they weren't just delivery people. They were then allowed, they were then encouraged they were then given authority to read and add commentary to these letters we we could read about the ways in which women are raised up and yet all that all that despite all that Yahweh has done to empower women in too many places we continue to perpetuate the downward pull of the fall we continue to perpetuate this idea that that women can't be used by God. We continue to, to give this the idea that this is second rate. This doesn't matter. My wife Heidi, who's downstairs, you hear all that noise down there? She's in the middle of it. She loves it. She's great at it. And it's fine. That's the most important thing that's happening in this building right now. But my wife Heidi is the associate director of Bloom. That may not mean anything to you, so let me explain it. Our church is part of a larger network of churches called Stadia. Stadia plants hundreds of churches every year. Well, I should say that. I think, I think that's only been true for the last couple of years. But they plant a lot of churches all over the world. They've been around for about 11, 12 years. And Stadia is this incredible thing where, where we, they support each other and they come together. But they realize pretty early on, we've got all these women in these new churches. Maybe they're in leadership roles, maybe they're on staff, maybe they're volunteer leaders, maybe they're married to someone who's on staff, a pastor, so on and so forth. And you can imagine that that's a pretty tough role. You can imagine that there, there's a lot of expectation, there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of hurdles in that, and any kind of endeavor where you're starting something new, you throw in religion, it gets dicey. And so Heidi has risen to this role where she is the number two in this organization, this week, you could be praying for her and these, and these women. They have a retreat, a two-day retreat, where they're going to get together in Charlotte, and they're going to be at a hotel, and they're going to be talking about material that my wife wrote. She wrote a book, for crying out loud. She wrote a book, for crying out loud. And they're going to be using that book to talk about the, over these, those two to three days. She's the first speaker 
okay? And she sets it all up. She's the first speaker for 120 women. Last year they had 50-some, so they've more than doubled their attendance. And she's running all this, essentially. She's, she's in charge of all this. And right after she got the job, we were at a conference. We were at a conference, and, and it's a bunch of pastors, and so it's like, it's like the skinny jeans and, like, cool glasses and haircut like Rich, and, and then it's like me. Like, that, those are the two types of people, right? And so, so I'm walking around, and, and I see a friend of a friend in ministry, right? See a friend of a friend, I'm introduced to my wife. And I, and I do this thing when I'm introducing myself. If I don't know your name and Heidi's nearby, I'll introduce Heidi to try to help you. If you say your name, then I'll remember. I was doing one of those things, right? I was introduced to my wife. And he said, and he said so what do you do at the church? And Heidi listed, you know, she said, well, she, she, at that time she was playing, playing a piano and singing, so she's part of the worship team. And she was part of the movement kids at that point. She is now. She helps lead our first impressions team. And uh, she screens all my jokes and the bad ones that come through, that's not her fault. That's because I didn't give them to her beforehand, right? But then she also said that she also is a part of Bloom, and she's part of the leadership structure, and she's got this new promotion, and she's the assistant director, or associate director, and all this great stuff. And the guy just looks at her. He goes, oh, you do women's ministry. With this, like, dismissive tone. Oh, you do women's ministry. Like, it's like this, it's this second-tier thing. It's like the, like the single-A ball. And she took it with class, and she didn't let it bother her. I was like, buddy, you have no idea. You have no idea what they're doing. You have no idea how many churches have been saved because of those women who are praying and supporting and encouraging one another. You have no idea how many times there's been, there's been a crisis, and it's because Bloom has stepped up to help. You have no idea the ways in which they're developing and, and serving local churches by the ways in which they are discipling one another. It's not just, it's not just a little tea party. And this, is, this is real. And I, I don't know what it's like. I'm about as privileged as it can get. I am. If I walk with authority, I can walk anywhere I want. And I know in church circles... I know in church circles, we have often pushed women over to the side. You guys just go in there and do a little Bible study. You guys could do the crafts for the kids. And, and like, I, I don't need to be doing crafts. Like, that'd be a bad idea. Somebody's got to do it, so maybe that makes sense. But maybe we need to understand that we have to, under, we have to see it as more than just this busy work. This single-A minor league crap. So here's the challenge. The challenge for me is not for me to demean myself, is not for me to say that what I do doesn't matter, not, not to simply say that we've got to tokenize women and get X number of women up front or whatever, but we do have to live into this challenge of embracing Yahweh's dream for everything. And I think Yahweh's dream has always been for both men and women to flourish in who he created them to be. And I think Yahweh's dream for, has been to restore men and women into their rightful places in terms of their relationship with one another and the relationship with, with him. But I believe that this restoration is a work in progress. And I think we all have a, a role to play in restoring God's dream for men and women. The responsibility for anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who said yes to Jesus, is to pursue 
this dream. And part of it is this equality, is this complementary ways in which that God has created us to come together across the genders, to come together to serve the greater purpose of the church. So we're, we're committed to this at Movement. We're not going to limit what someone can do here just because of their gender. We're not going to say that well, if you were only a dude, you could lead that. We're not going to get in the way of that. We're going to make decisions that we see in terms of a rubric that we see in the New Testament where people ask about ability, they ask about giftedness, they ask about character, they ask about availability and willingness. We don't have a checkbox, male or female, and then ask you to simply get in this line if you're over there. So what are these challenges for you and I? The challenge, number one, is that we can't perpetuate the curse. We've got, we got to get rid of the second-rate second language. Oh, it's just a women's group. Oh, it's just women's study. I'm not saying you guys do that, but we've got to be a part of the solution. We've got we to get rid of this ways which we ignore, we diminish the voices and the accomplishments of women and, and, and understand that we need to, to, to elevate them. Like, like, do you understand? If I was running a conference and had 120 people showing up and I was the first speaker, you all would have heard about it multiple times. I wouldn't shut up about that. I wouldn't shut up about that. That would go straight to my head. My wife... She's downstairs teaching first and fifth graders because that's what she's good at. She's going to make this all happen because this is what she's good at. So we can't get in this place where we minimize things. We need to recognize that, that just the way it is isn't a, no longer a good enough excuse. It's not, it's not, it doesn't work anymore. So we can't, can't perpetuate the curses. The second thing is we have to partner to restore God's dream. To the women in the room, no idea what you go through. No idea what it's like to be overlooked at work. No idea what it's like to be dismissed when you have an opinion. I have no idea what that's like. I hear and I've listened. I, you tell me it happens, I believe you. I, I, but I have no idea what that happens, what that's like. And so here's the thing. Here at Movement Church, if you experience that, you've got to let us know. We're trying. But we might need some help along the way. Because this is what we believe. We believe that you are made in the image of God. We believe that you are gifted to carry out his purposes in this world. And we want you, we need you to step up into that. To the men in the room, it matters to women that we stand up for them. This isn't just their fight, their issue. It doesn't mean you have to like, become like a, I don't know, whatever, whatever character of extreme you do, but you need to step up. So I ask you, will you use your position of authority, of, of prominence, of influence, of whatever, to, to promote this? Will you listen to the women around you? Will you consider the idea that God may be speaking through a woman? Will you consider the idea that God may be using a woman in your life to point you to something better? Because this is what we want for our church. Helping people find and follow Jesus. This often means that we have to get out of the way of the work of Jesus. That we are often a hindrance more than a help. And one of the ways that we can do that is simply by removing or trying to remove all those barriers, all that static and all that confusion. So we're going to look to the New Testament model where we ask questions about giftedness. We ask questions about, about are you willing? We ask questions about character. We don't ask questions about gender. 
what I see in terms of people putting people in places of leadership and authority, that's what I see. So is God sexist? No. Yahweh, God is empowering. Jesus is empowering. And it's up to us to embrace that. It's up to us to take those steps. I'm going to ask you to do something that may be slightly uncomfortable. If you've been here this long, you can do this. Here in a moment, I'm going to ask us all to stand. And when you stand, if you're here with someone that you're close with, I would invite you, and so I'm not going to ask you to do this with a stranger, I'd invite you to hold their hand. You're here with your, your spouse, you're here with a friend, you're here with just somebody you know well. I'd invite you to hold hands with them, just as a, out of solidarity. And as we're standing, and as maybe some of you are holding hands with the person next to you, I'm going to invite us to be praying. To be praying that we would embrace, that we would step into God's dream for all aspects of our lives, including this one. And this isn't going to solve everything, but this is something. This does matter. So if you're willing, if you're able, let's stand and pray together.